Well, this morning, I invite you to open up your Bibles to the Song of Solomon. The Song of Solomon. Or in some of your versions, if you have the New International Version or the New Living Translation or other versions, it might be called the Song of Songs. Song of Songs. Find that right about in the middle of your Bible. If you open it up to the middle, you won't be that far away. It comes right after Ecclesiastes and right before Isaiah. Well, last Sunday, and again today, we're looking into two books of the Bible that over the centuries have left many people wondering, what is the point of that? Did I just read what I thought I read? Well, those two books are Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. They're two perplexing books, and they fall into the category of writing called wisdom, wisdom literature. And so I've called this series Wisdom from Strange Places. The content of, in both of these books could lead someone to ask, why are these books in the Bible? How could these books be part of what we call God's Word? Last week we answered that question for Ecclesiastes, and this week I want to try to answer that same question regarding the Song of Solomon. The reason I've called these books strange is because of what's in them, the content. Ecclesiastes struck, as, as, struck us as odd because it was so negative. It had a, had a very cynical view of life. Song of Solomon is strange because, how, because of how it describes in very vivid language a relationship between a man and a woman. A lot of us probably would be embarrassed to read this book out loud. We'd probably prefer this kind of talk to stay private. Prime Minister Trudeau was famous for saying, the state has no business in the bedrooms of the nation. Well, a lot of us might think that the bedroom has no business in the pages of the Bible. And yet here we find Song of Solomon right smack dab in the middle of God's word. So why is it in there? Since 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says that all scripture is inspired and is useful for teaching, reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. Since that is true, how does Song of Solomon fit into that? All scripture, it says, is useful. Why did God see fit to include this book in his holy word? Just as a a bit of a historical aside, when scholars were making the final decisions on what books would be included in the Old Testament back in the late first century, these two books, Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon, were the last two that were added. They were probably the most controversial. But just like God included Ecclesiastes for a very good reason, as we talked about last week, I want to try to make the case today that God has a very good reason for including this song too. So in the time that we've got left, I just want to give us an overview of why it's in our Bible and why it's beneficial for us. Throughout history, there, there's been a debate about what to do with this book, and especially how to interpret it. Some people look at the content, and because it makes them extremely uncomfortable, think that there's no way that we could ever take this literally. It has to mean something else. And so they interpret this book allegorically. 
which basically says that this man and this woman in this book weren't real people. They would say that the Song of Solomon is a literary device that symbolizes God's love for Israel. God is the man and and Israel is the woman. Or Christ's love for the church. Christ is the man, the church is the woman. And there have been many different sort of variations of that sort of interpretation. But the focus is always on what these two lovers represent. But I think the best way to look at this song is to take it literally and to read it naturally. After reading all the interpretations this week, my own view is that this song is a love poem or a collection of poems between two ordinary people who lived around the time of Solomon. Now, someone pointed out this morning, showed me the bulletin and where I had the title of this virtuous love and and then said, from the Song of Solomon, and said, hey, listen, didn't, didn't Solomon have 700 wives? That is very true, and now I'm going to answer what I think about that. In saying that, I'm also saying that Solomon may not have written this book. As I read through it this week, and from what we know in the rest of the Bible about the direction Solomon's life went, especially the fact that was pointed out that he had 700 wives, and what she didn't point out is that he also had 300 concubines, This ideal portrait of two loyal lovers here in Song of Solomon just doesn't seem to fit. Solomon seems more like, more of a a bad example to hold up rather than a good example. So, where you have the first verse and it says, The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, that could just mean that it was written in honor of Solomon. Or that it was part of Solomon's collection of songs. But like I said, this Song of Songs is probably a series of love poems that have been put into one collection. I say that because it's hard to find a a set structure for this book. It doesn't read like like a story that progresses from a beginning to an end. Although, in some parts, it seems like it moves from a desire, anticipation of being married to the actual marriage and then to the consummation of that marriage. But even then, some parts just don't seem like they fit into that timeline. But you have to remember, this is poetry. And poetry is like that. Poets don't always think in logical progressions. They can be all over the place. And so we have to read this not as a story, but as a love poem. And because of that, for this overview, I just want to point out the main things that Song of Solomon should make us think about. This is a a wisdom book, and like Ecclesiastes before, it will make us think about some things concerning this week, love and marriage and relationships. And so just to give you a flavor of the book, let me read a couple of portions from chapter 7 and 8. I was bugging Pastor Wayne for the scriptural reading of the passages that I was going to make him read, but I was really nice and, and just let him read from Genesis, where all he had to say was they were naked and not ashamed. But... This gets a little bit more graphic here. So we're going to read Song of Solomon, chapter 7, just a few verses there, from verses 6 to 10, and then over to a few verses in chapter 8. Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 6. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like clusters. I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. O may your breasts be like clusters of the vine and the scent of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. It goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. 
I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. And then over to chapter 8, verse 5. Who is it that's coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Under the apple tree I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she bore you. She who bore you was in labor. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters can't quench love. Neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. And I remind you, this is the word of the Lord. For some of you, maybe you blushed when I read that. Or maybe you were shocked to find out that this is actually in the Bible. Now you know why some people have tried to turn this into an allegory or a drama. It's just not something we would normally read in church, is it? It's basically a book about two people, a man and a woman who are in love and who want to get married and who eventually do get married. The man is described in chapter 1, verse 7 as someone who pastures his flock. He's a shepherd. And the woman there in chapter 1, verse 8, the next verse, is described the same way. He wants her to pasture her flock of young goats right beside the shepherd's tents where he is. And so these are two ordinary people in love, both shepherds, or a shepherd and a shepherdess, and they have fallen in love. And they talk about their love in a very open way, but they also talk about their relationship and their desire in, in subtle, discreet ways. There are lots of images here, especially images, if you read it, if you read right through it, you'll see lots of images from nature. You may have even noticed that as I read from chapter 7 and 8. Palm trees and vineyards and apples and various creatures that they compare each other to. Now, we don't quite know in this age what those images meant, but all of them point to something that is great, something that is the absolute best. That's what you need to think of when you read about these, these images. And that's how they describe each other. They are what each other most desires in the whole world. They think the other person looks the best and is the best thing in the world. And you look at that and there's, there's just something romantic and, and innocent about that, isn't there? It draws us in and makes us almost want to cheer for this couple. Even for those of us that are not as romantically inclined, such as yours truly. But this is not just a love story. This is not just a romance novel. This is the Bible. These are words from Holy Scripture. And they are also words of wisdom. And so we need to ask what God means for us to learn from these poems, from this song. Like Ecclesiastes, this is another one of those books that God put in his word to make us think. Where Ecclesiastes made us think about what really matters in life, Song of Solomon makes us think about the nature of our relationships, especially the relationship that God chose to use as a picture of the intimacy that exists between his son and his bride, the bride of Christ, namely the relationship between a husband and a wife. Now, Song of Solomon doesn't tell us everything we should know about marriage. 
It's not an exhaustive course on marriage, but it does give us some basics. And so Song of Solomon is in our Bible to make us consider the relationship between a couple who will become husband and wife. And the main thing that we need to do from this book is to consider the proper framework of physical love. In Song of Solomon, physical desire and physical love has certain parameters, a certain context, certain limits. Love and desire must be expressed in a monogamous relationship between one man and one woman. It must be virtuous. It must be pure. It really helps us to interpret Song of Solomon when we think of it as an explanation of God's original design for marriage. As we read about in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2. These eight chapters of Solomon are what God had in mind for marriage from the very beginning. And what he had in mind in the very beginning involves sexual union, involves physical, a physical fellowship, an intimate fellowship. In Genesis 1.28, he tells them there to be fruitful and multiply. In chapter 2, verse 18, it says, Then the Lord said, It is not good that the man should be alone. And then he creates the woman. Fellowship. And then in chapter 2, verse 24 and 25, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. There you have it. That's a summary of what God designed this coming together of a man and a woman to accomplish. And Song of Solomon is a case in point of how that works its way out. Genesis gives us the context. Hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. And in that particular context, there was no shame. And so when we get to Song of Solomon, we have these two lovers. We have one man and one woman. They become one flesh. And once again, in that particular context, and only in that context, there is no shame in their nakedness. And so in that way, Song of Solomon is basically an extended commentary on Genesis 1 and 2. And that's why it's good to read a book like this once in a while in church. It helps us think about how God created this world as good. And when we, as God's people, talk about his design and, and his creation, we can talk about that freely and honestly. Most people outside the church actually think that Christians have a negative view on human sexuality. They're very repressive. But when we read a book like this, where sexuality is expressed within the beautiful parameters in which God created it, we can talk about it in, in good taste and with propriety yet without any sense of shame or embarrassment. And so within those parameters, Christianity has a positive view on human sexuality, not a negative, repressive view. What has happened, though, is that we don't live in a Genesis 2 world. We live in a Genesis 3 world. Genesis 2 ends with those words, they were naked and not ashamed. It was all good. But the very next words are, now the serpent was crafty. And we all know what happened then. He tricked Adam and Eve into doubting God's word, and they sinned and they plunged all of humanity into sin. And that's the world we live in. 
and every part of God's creation has now been marred and blemished and stained, including the perfect relationship between man and woman. And nowhere, it seems, is this more rampant, the effects of sin, than in the area of human sexuality. Not that things were any better in the old days, but we're now almost 50 years into what's been called the sexual revolution. Most of us have been raised in in that world, in this world. And this whole idea of one man and one woman for life almost seems archaic and backwoodsish. Here's how Mark Dever describes the effects of this kind of world. He says, quote, In this revolution, simple changes instigated profound effects. Contraception replaced conception. Pleasure was separated from responsibility. Contraception devices and abortion clinics replaced schools and orphanages. Since that time, divorce, remarriage, abortion, pre- and extramarital sex, and even homosexuality have been accepted by increasing percentages of the public. The boundaries that once seemed fixed now seem less secure. End quote. This is the world in which we live. These are the depths into which a Genesis 3 world will inevitably plunge. And of course, now pornography is this huge business. One stat I read this week said the pornography industry has larger revenues than Microsoft, Google, Amazon, eBay, and Apple combined. 97.06 billion in 2006, up from 10 billion uh, 10 years before that, 1996. This is where we live. It seems like the one area that gets most perverted by the fall is this area of human sexuality. Seems like sex is and always has been one of the most abused of God's gifts. In the Old Testament, for example, it didn't take long for humankind to fall prey to immorality. Already in Genesis 4, we find Lamech bragging about his two wives. Even one of our Old Testament heroes, David, fell into terrible sexual immorality. Then we get to the New Testament. Jesus and, and the letters send out lots of warnings about this danger. Romans 13.13 13 says, Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but, in jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Or 1 Corinthians 6, verses 18 to 20, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Colossians 3.5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. What, are, what is earthly? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. 1 Thessalonians 4, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. All of these highlight the fact that sexual immorality and fornication is one of the things to which humankind, even believers, 
are most susceptible post-Genesis 2. But the Genesis 2 ideal, that standard, still stands. Here's the way Song of Solomon holds up that standard. Four times in this book, you'll read these words. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. This is the woman writing to a group of young ladies, counseling, counseling them out of her own wisdom not to awaken love until it pleases. Don't stir it up. Just leave it alone. There is a right time to awaken love. And that right time is within the context of marriage. Until, until then, or outside of that context, love, uh, physical shows of affection, need to stay asleep. It's basically what that's saying. This is a good word for all of us towards modesty. Don't act in any way and don't dress in any way that might stir up love before it's time. But even more than that, it's a call for all of us to keep human sexuality within the God-designed framework. When you do that, you will be able to fully enjoy and to celebrate God's good gift of sexual intimacy. It was meant to be a good gift all along. That's what Song of Solomon encourages. Yes, we live in a Genesis 3 world, but Song of Solomon gives us a description of how things were when God created them and how it can be. For God's people, we need to remember that even though all this has, all has been marred in terms of a relationship with the opposite sex, even though the curse brought with it the desire for men to rule in a domineering way and for women to try to usurp a man's authority, there is still hope. As God's people, as people who have been taken out of the world, and now especially through Christ, we can live according to a Genesis 2 standard. What was lost can be regained. What was can yet be. Song of Solomon is here to tell us that when we function within God's framework, and when we are committed to the one we love, we can enjoy his good gifts. And one of those good gifts is sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife. So Song of Solomon is a real-life example of commitment and of permanence, dedication, intimacy. Follows right along the wisdom from Proverbs 5, 15 to 19. And this, you have to remember, is advice from a father to his young son on the dangers of the forbidden woman. It says there, drink water from your own cistern. Flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all time with delight. Be intoxicated always in, in her love. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. That's commitment, that's dedication, that's loyalty, that's satisfaction, enjoyment. It's the way God designed for delight to flourish within this context of one man and one woman committed to each other. And that idea of loyalty and commitment brings us to one final point that Song of Solomon should make us think about. A book like this 
with a relationship described in these poetic ways should make us consider the perfect love of God through Christ. I know I said that we should take this book naturally and literally rather than allegorically, but when we look at any picture of true love, any example of loyal love, of of pure love, of exclusive love, of virtuous love, it illustrates something of the love of Christ towards believers. When Paul wrote about marriage in Ephesians 5, he held up the example of the love between Christ and his people. And so when we see this beautiful, God-designed portrait of love here in Song of Solomon, this initial longing for love, it points to the relationship that we can have with God. The way to truly know the love of God is to repent of your sins and to trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. The couple in Song of Solomon shows us that kind of love by by showing us a couple that is exclusively devoted to each other and has forsaken everything and everyone else for the love of another. In the same way, we need to forsake everything else, our sins, our lawlessness, our idols, our pride, our other affections, and turn to Christ exclusively. These two are a good picture of the fact that it is in Christ alone that we can find true fulfillment and a loyal, never-dying love. He has loved us by giving up his life and by dying on a cross willingly and lovingly taking upon himself the wrath of God that should have come down upon us. This takes us right back, full circle, back to the Lord's Supper, doesn't it? If we look to Christ, depending on him alone for our salvation, we can know the love of Christ. And just like these two in this song, we can be sure it's a loyal, undying love. In chapter 8 there, it talks about the strength of their love. Those verses I read earlier, love is as strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire. The very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love. Neither can floods drown it. Sounds an awful lot like Romans 8.39. Nothing will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's a loving relationship in which ultimate meaning is found. And that is the unspoken message of Song of Solomon. It points, it illustrates, it points to the one loving relationship that we should all long for. A relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so Song of Solomon is in the Bible to elevate the beauty and joy of God's gift of fellowship of fellowship and of intimacy within the context of marriage. There is the waiting and the anticipation of physical intimacy. And there is the consummation of that physical intimacy. Song of Solomon is a positive example that what was lost because of our sin can still be found and experienced within the parameters that God designed. And so I encourage all of you today, even in this hypersexualized world in which we lived, in which we live now, not to get tricked into stirring up love in any other context other than that which God intended. That's one application. But because sin is still present in our world, perfect submission can't even happen now. And so Song of Solomon also points ahead to a greater fulfillment of love It gets that picture of perfect marriage into our heads. And that perfect fulfillment, that perfect satisfaction, that perfect love will come in the future. 
as Christ, the bridegroom, comes for his bride, which is the church, which is you and me, those who are believers in Christ. And so my Christian brothers and sisters, while physical intimacy now is a gift, this song should also drive you back into this posture of anticipation as we eagerly await the marriage feast between our Lord and His bride, the church. Let's pray.